As of this recording on May 12th, global cases of COVID-19 exceeds 4.1 million. Over 1.3 million of those cases are in the United States. In the last several weeks, students have been hunkered down distance learning, but what will a new school year bring? Inside Higher Ed recently reported that up to 29% of college students could make the decision to defer college until the pandemic is over. I'm your host, Penny Conway, and on today's episode of Connections to Experience, we're talking with Sean McCann about how higher education can prepare to survive what could be the biggest gap year in recent history. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Penny. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you. Why don't you take a second here to introduce what you do here at Connection and really what brings you to the podcast today? Yeah, yes, absolutely. So I've been with Connection for a little over 10 years now, focused primarily on what we do from a higher ed perspective nationally. So I work with a lot of our AMs, a lot of our BDMs, a lot of our sales leaders, kind of setting the strategy for, for what we do from a higher ed perspective. Excellent. So you probably have been one busy guy, as many of our customers have had to snap two into a distance learning model that maybe some of them weren't quite prepared to do. What have you kind of seen out there in terms of, you know, preparedness and utterly unprepared? We won't name yeah. any names. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think, you know, the short answer is, is higher ed is, is kind of no different than, than everybody else, right? That they weren't prepared for this. You know, it's something that um, from a, there's really two kind of buckets of, of what we do from a higher ed perspective. There's kind of the institutional side of the house, right? The faculty and staff and kind of keeping the operation up and running. And, and that's kind of what was was woefully prepared, I think, from a higher ed perspective. The student side, a little bit less of a challenge just because, you know, some of the infrastructure was already in place for remote learning. But the mm -hmm. faculty and staff and the institutional side was really a, a much of a challenge. That's a good point, because from a student, you know, obviously people talk about education as a whole when they look at distance learning, but K through 12, which uh, for those listening, we're going to dig into K through 12 and, and future episodes here. But K through 12 was primarily in the classroom, classroom learning, but higher education has always really had, not always, but in recent history had this hybrid model of, you know, you've got distance learners that just I did online learning for school and I was on campus. It was part of the offering that they had in general. And in some schools, I'll give a nod to Southern New Hampshire University has a very robust online program. But even those that didn't have the same type of program still had some students in some sort of distance learning to begin with. So that transition was probably easier for them than K through 12. It's funny you bring up Southern New Hampshire. So I, again, we won't name any names, but, you know, I talked to a customer five or six years ago, you know, that was kind of concerned that, you know, a school like Southern New Hampshire or Western Governors or even Arizona State that's going to try to get into the online space was taking away from their applicant pool, right? People that had kind of wanted that historic on campus were starting to consider more of a, an online first or, a, you know, kind of that remote learning experience. And fast forward five years and it, it, that same customer is now trying to kind of go after that talent pool that Southern New Hampshire or Arizona State or Western Governors has, has really captured. So 
um, over the last couple of years, everybody's tried to kind of put together some type of a, uh, an online or a remote or a, a distance learning, some type of a hybrid environment. And that's kind of been in place. You know, I remember back when, was it the University of Phoenix yeah. was the online school and yeah. everyone had this negative perception of online learning and online yeah. degrees. It was like you were getting a fake degree if you did all of your schooling online. And fast forward, I mean, God, when did University of Phoenix come out? Over 20 years ago? Yeah. And now colleges are literally preparing to be mostly online degree programs. And it the game has changed. And I bet you the guys at University of Phoenix are sitting there going, Man, we were just too we were just too early. I don't know yeah. how they're doing now, but I, I know that a lot of other online schools, like you said, have sort of taken over in terms of online competition. From a financial perspective, right? It, it's a higher margin offering for right. the universities. That said, it, it's a little bit more difficult to scale, right? And and so that kind of becomes the challenge. Now, while we're talking about scaling and, and SNHU, I before we kind of drop off of that and I went to SNHU, so I, I have sort of that personal connection to it. But I was really impressed, and I don't think that they're going to be, I'm not sure if they were the first, but they certainly I don't think are going to be the last in terms of having to reimagine what a campus looks like, uh, not only next year, but the subsequent years. As we've said on a million episodes, there's a new normal that's coming here. And I don't think it's, you know, let's figure out what's going to happen in the next school year. It's more, let's figure out what our next plan is for the next 10 years. Yeah. So they had, and we can put this in the show notes, they are talking about really a wanting students to come on campus, be part of the campus experience, be involved in clubs, be able to practice social distancing in those events and sports and things like that where they're able, but have students use their online platform for their schooling primarily to avoid that in-classroom close contact. Are you seeing a lot of schools trying to figure out how to do something similar or, you know, kind of what are you seeing from people out there and how they're going to reimagine their own campuses? Yeah, I think September kind of is, is really the million dollar question, right? It's it's where are we going to be come September? And, and when you kind of look at enrollment numbers and, and, you know, use the term gap year, you know, acceptance numbers are actually up, right? And, and people that are committing to universities are actually up. But there's a big difference, I think, right, between putting a, a you know, a $1,500 deposit down and then actually enrolling in, in September. And so, you know, as we get into June, into July and into August, you know, that's kind of the next big domino to potentially fall, right? Is our students going to be back on campus? Is it going to be somewhat of a, a more hybrid experience? And, and frankly, you know, for some of those universities that are out there, are folks going to be willing to pay kind of full sticker price for somewhat of a, a hybrid offering? And, and, you know, so we kind of take a look at it and we see you know, maybe that is the case, but maybe there's some beneficiaries, things like uh, an online offering or, or a community college offering or, or some of the state schools that are a little bit less expensive. You know, do they benefit potentially from, from some of this in September? Right. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I think everywhere we we see the hashtagging, we see the hype, we see the every article's got sort of that headline that wants to grab you and almost give you a little bit of fear about, you know, everything's going to crumble as a result of this. And I think everyone is optimistic 
about being able to keep, you know, there's a whole slew of seniors that, you know, feel robbed of their senior year and don't want to be robbed of their freshman college experience. So I, another thing SNU was doing was giving, you know, free tuition, discounted tuition to incoming freshmen to really encourage them. And we've talked a lot about the coronavirus being a tipping point for a lot of things. And when I look at higher education and what we've seen over the past decade or so of increasing tuition costs, and now we are seeing schools really react to tuition and families being impacted by this, making sure that kids can still be on campus, international students not coming in. There's naturally a fear over the the budget aspect of this. And I know you mentioned that the overhead for online learning is less than having kids on campus. But when you have to set up this model and you have to think about all the things that go into to really building a robust online program for students to make sure they're getting you know, they're satisfied academically and requirements are being met. How much do you think the the budget part of this or the reduction of students is going to affect schools budget to adequately care for education going into the next couple of years? Yeah, it, it's an interesting time, right? You know, there's, there's a couple different ways that a lot of universities are funded, right? There's kind of, the, you know, the endowment side of it that, that some of our, you know, larger institutions think of kind of like a Harvard or Yale. There's research money, right, is, is a big piece of, you know, something MIT, think Stanford, Georgia Tech, that, you know, a lot of their operation is funded by research dollars that come in. There's, you know, kind of like the philanthropy and, and like called like a corporate partnership, you know, think, you know, your power conferences, your SEC, your ACC, your Big Ten, the biggest piece of funding, though, is kind of that enrollment piece, right? right? And that's what funds the vast majority of these colleges that are out there. And again, September becomes such a big date because, you know, there's a subset of universities that, that just can't sustain not having that tuition revenue for six months, right? I mean, you know, right. I, I think I, I read a stat that I think that tuition revenue accounted for 36% of public institution revenue Wow. After 2008, in 2018, it was closer to 50%. So it's a substantial portion of kind of what makes that operation go. And, you know, a, a down year or two could be catastrophic to, to some of the smaller institutions that are out there. Right. So the bigger guys, the more robust universities will likely you know, make their way through this. Obviously, everyone might not be, I know people don't like to say it, but they might not be as profitable as they were in recent years, but can be more sustainable. But that was kind of my thought is, you know, some of these smaller colleges that have been out there, you drive by these small campuses and rural areas, and those might be the schools that can't survive one year of down enrollment. And that's sort of the what's yet to be seen and obviously will change the higher ed landscape moving forward, you know, if we start to see the reduction of schools in general. And we had started to see that, right, even before everything kind of happened with, with COVID-19, right? There was a whole lot of M&A that was, that was a part of higher education, schools partnering for certain offerings, right? It, it was easier to acquire a school that had a physics department than it would be to kind of build out your own practice. And, and so there had been a lot of M&A and, and uh, you know, we had talked a little bit about kind of community colleges and we had started to see a, a lot of that again, even before this. So is this kind of the, the pin that, that pops that bubble? But, you know, perhaps. 
for our listeners and for me, I'll I'll plead ignorance. M and A. What does that stand for? Merger and acquisition. Merger so, and acquisition. Um, okay. You know, a lot of you know, Southern New Hampshire is a great example, right? They've kind of Daniel Webster had a, I think it was an aeronautics. There was a school that uh, Southern New Hampshire had picked up so that they could acquire just uh, again a new offering for their end users. Right. It could be a benefit. You know, we see some of these larger schools pick up different, more specialized areas of education. And again, an interesting thing looking into what could be after this. I want to dig into the distance learning piece because I think there's both a social aspect of this and there's a infrastructure aspect of this. Like we said, being able to set up an environment that can handle the load of all of these students and all of the faculty teaching there. But from in your conversations with higher education institutions, what's the perception of students being a 100% remote and distance learning versus on campus? You know, are students dropping out? Are students finishing their spring? semester? Are they encouraged to return from an academic standpoint? What's the struggle been there? Yeah, I I think that for all intents and purposes, people have pieced it together, for lack of a better phrase, through the remainder of the spring semester. And, and, you know, you you feel for the folks that, you know, the seniors that didn't kind of get to experience that last couple months of their senior year. Again, for all intents and purposes, it's been pieced together for, you know, two and a half months. That said, the experience hasn't been the same. And that's what a lot of our customers are looking at is if we do need to go to a similar type offering in September, obviously there's going to be the social aspect that, you know, we can't recreate, but we need to make sure that the experience is as uniform as we could possibly make it to being on campus, whether they're, you know, remote in Massachusetts or Oklahoma or in Florida. We've been talking a lot about the cloud. You know, every organization has had to, you know, part of their move to remote has been sort of this increased dependency on cloud platforms and cloud storage and being able to have that flexibility and a a decrease of a dependency on data center. What's it looking like in higher education? How are IT decision makers? This, I think, is a kind of a whole new ballgame in high ed of having to really reduce their reliance on data centers? You know, the the things that we're hearing from from a lot of our customers, right, is number one, we need to figure out a way to reduce our costs. Again, there's a whole lot of unknown. And and when, you know, the vast majority of your revenue is based on tuition, and that's kind of in flux right now, you know, number one is say we need to figure out a way to reduce our costs. Two is, you know, like you said, we kind of need to reduce the dependency that we have on our data center. We need to figure out a way to kind of mobilize our workforce but that kind of creates a new problem as well, right, is, is that I no longer have to contain a campus or all of the, you know, hardware and software that's, you know, within four walls of a campus in Hartford, Connecticut. Now I have this new perimeter that's been created and I need to figure out a way uh, to kind of manage and secure that new perimeter. And that's become a huge challenge for a lot of our customers. What would your, you know, your personal recommendation be, you know, if someone is starting to look at that, what are sort of the steps that they should take, the things that they should watch out for when they're, because this has to happen quick. This isn't, we all know that all these projects that maybe were a two, three, four, five year roadmap project are now becoming a two, three, four, five month roadmap project. So what would your recommendation be as, as folks are sort of making these switches? 
reach out, reach out to <laughs> us. You know, it's everybody's in a different piece of, of the puzzle, right? And they've kind of, there's so much that goes into kind of creating that uniform experience. And everybody's, again, kind of pieced together with things like Zoom or Teams or, or WebEx. But what do you have? What do you already have in place from an infrastructure perspective? You know, what can we help you with from an infrastructure perspective? What can we help you with from a services perspective? Everybody's going to kind of have a different answer, I think, depending on, you know, how prepared they were for this. Yeah. You know, I had a, a sort of a, a thought. We we've said a lot that Corona could potentially be the tipping point for the more as a service industry across the board, sure. because it offers that that flexibility. If I'm if I'm using it, I'm paying for it. If I'm not using it and I don't need it, then I'm not paying for it. And I know, in, especially in those maybe smaller universities, more rural universities, that as the service model hasn't necessarily, there hasn't been a catalyst for it. So this is sort of their make or break time because it's going to come down to that sort of budget and how many dollars can we free up and projecting how many students are actually going to return and who's not. Do you think that how universities handle the 2020-2021, so much easier to say 1990, wasn't it? Like when it was it a was. 19, oh, now it's 20 that. in it. Everything sounds funny yeah. when you say it. Do you say um, 20 or do you say 2000? I guess you could say 2020, 2021. Yeah, that sounds better than 2021, 2020. See, I can't even do it. Um, I both. But anyway. <laughs> Whatever you're with. <laughs> a little tongue twister is now that that's over with. But do you think that how they handle this upcoming school year whether they're a top 10, whether they're a small community college, do you think that this is a make or break year for them? Like how they handle this, how they petition for enrollment, the student experience for distance learning. Do you think that this will make people return the following year or say, I got to find a school that, you know, has a way better setup, is more accommodating, is more cloud-based, has more services for me? What's your yeah. sort of thought process on that? I think this is an, an opportunity for kind of improvement and an opportunity for change. And if schools try to go about things in September the way that they have historically, again, there's a number of them that won't survive. Folks do find this as an opportunity for improvement and for change. They can make the experience much better and they will survive but they have to do things differently than they've done in the past. And um, so I think the short answer to your question is, is yes, right? Like if this is a make or break year for a lot of different schools, and there are a number of them that if they don't start doing things a little bit differently are very much at risk. Yeah, because I look at it, you know, as an employee of a company, it's obviously a, a way different experience being an employee versus being a student, working or learning from a distance. And you know, I can receive regular communication from my my company. I can be tapped into what's going on uh, with my organization. But students don't always have the same communication or exposure level and vice versa. The university isn't always like, here's everything that's going on behind the scenes and here's all of our plans. And so students are almost like customers now. I mean, they always they kind of always have been. But I think the customer experience more than ever, because there isn't 
there might not be that social aspect. Like I look at a, an Arizona State University where clearly people might be going there for a very social experience, to put it lightly. But if that's not there, then what does the University of Arizona have to do to make the online distance experience just as compelling to retain those students? So that's sort of like that competition area I think about. It's a big challenge, right? And, you know, like you said, if, if you're located at, you know, Miami Beach, there's, you know, maybe a, a little bit of a, a different attraction to, to your campus than perhaps, I don't know, a Penn University State of or, Vermont. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, right. yeah. And so, again, are folks willing to to kind of pay the premium, right? You use the term customer. It's, a, it's perfect, right? I mean, that's exactly what, right. you know, the student kind of is to the university is, is, is a customer. And so are folks willing to pay that premium? for the University of Miami or, or Arizona State or, or, you know, the University of Texas, if they're getting the exact same experience that, you know, you would get at the University of Vermont, it kind of remains to be seen. The whole competitive landscape to me is so intriguing, especially in, in education. And I, I read an opinion article, I think it was in Business Insider, that had said that schools are going, because that social aspect is gone, their technology and their learning systems and their teachers themselves are really going to have to step up and prove why someone might, well, like you're saying, someone might want to spend $36,000. Is that worth, you know, were you paying that for the ed- quality of education or are you paying that for the social experience that you would have at a, a certain university? And I, I think this is going to be very telling for, you know, a lot of universities and their customers. The students are going to be very vocal about what, you know, getting their monies worth. So that's all um, to be seen. Uh, another thing I want to touch on with you is, uh, and this is always a hot topic with us, which is security, cybersecurity, security threats, different things like that. And thinking about, you know, all of these students off campus and maybe higher ed, maybe I'm wrong, maybe higher ed has actually been more equipped to handle this because they've had students everywhere. They've had a mobile customer base. Are there any, you know, major security concerns that schools are dealing with right now as a result of adapting to the pandemic that maybe they weren't thinking about before? Yeah, I think the biggest one, and we, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, is kind of that new perimeter that's been created, right? It's it's a little bit easier, you know, for somebody in a, a security office to, to kind of lock down a perimeter when, you know, they're kind of in control of that. It's a lot more challenging when that perimeter is, you know, 5,000 faculty and staff that are spread across, you know, seven different cities in, in a state. That's really been the, the biggest challenge is, is how can we kind of manage and secure that new perimeter that's been created by having our, our workforce kind of remote. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if this is more, it's me thinking out loud here, if students that are now going to be 100% online, if students themselves become the security risk of hacking into their own system to adjust grades, change due dates, and whatever the else might be able to happen in it's, an online learning platform. <laughs> it's created a whole set of, of new challenges and new problems and, and, and one more reason for a security officer to, uh, to stay awake at night. 
And they love when we keep telling them all of these things that they need to worry about. But I, I want to switch to something and maybe we close with this. We've talked a lot about social distancing on campus, how people are going to adapt. And we've talked about the sort of the bad pieces, the things to think about. But there's one segment of higher ed, and this is one of Rob McIntosh's favorite topics, which is esports, which has been online, which has been and there are arenas that have been set up and schools are very ingrained in this. Do you see this as a positive for esports and sort of an opportunity for growth for universities in the esports space? Yeah. So esports is something that, again, had, you know, the popularity had been skyrocketing for, for quite some time. We really have two different types of customers that had been looking at esports, right? One type of customer was looking to increase the experience for those folks on campus, right? And they were looking to give end users a place to go and, and do their gaming, but keep them on campus. The second type of customer is the customer that was looking at an esports program to help drive tuition revenue right? And to help drive net new enrollment. We're going to see more of that because again, you know, everybody's kind of in, in flux right now and September is a bit of a challenge. And if you are a, a small or mid-sized university that is potentially struggling from an enrollment perspective, things like an esports program can make the difference between, you know, hitting that threshold of the number of students needed for a, a freshman incoming class. Very good point. And I, I kind of like that. That's sort of a nugget there is, you know, people are rethinking their strategy as a whole about how to accommodate distance learning, make sure that they decrease their dependence on data centers, move to more cloud and as a service platforms, the opportunity to grow an esports program to help offset, you know, potential loss of revenue or enrollment could be a great opportunity because uh, chances are a lot of them have some sort of infrastructure set up. And now it's just sort of building the specialty program and sort of outlets to plug into in order to really grow that that enrollment. Super interesting stuff, Sean. I, I think the future of high ed is going to be exciting. I think that there's been, you know, my personal opinion is there's kind of been a need for some type of reform to balance the sort of old campus, new campus, online you know, cost reduction for students and things like that. I think this is an exciting time for high ed and would love to have you back to kind of talk about, you know, as this sort of evolves and as people think about what they're going to do next, sort of get, you know, your take on the current situation and just keep us up to date because I, I think it's going to be a really exciting time for high ed, even though there's a lot of challenges that they're obviously facing at the same time. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Penny, right? It's an intriguing time. It's a fascinating time. But like you said, there, there was probably a need for some reform. And hopefully we can use this as an opportunity to, as I had kind of mentioned earlier, improve and, and change a little bit about the Hyatt industry overall. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Sean. Uh, great content. If you are out there and you have questions on how to navigate all of this stuff or just looking for a little extra support, reach out to your Connection account manager. We clearly have some experts in our high ed space to help you through this. And on whatever platform you are listening to, please remember to like, share and follow. Uh, you can also leave us a comment and let us know what you thought about today's episode or drop us an email at podcast at connection.com. Sean, thanks so much for joining today. A lot of fun and great information. Thanks, Penny. I enjoyed it. All right. Have a good day, everyone.